I'd like to welcome you to this special lecture in the Aquinas Institute programme, and we're extremely pleased to welcome Professor Tim Poole. He's the Associate Professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of St Thomas in St Paul, Minnesota, and works on metaphysics, philosophical theology and moral psychology. He is currently in England, which is a great opportunity for us to invite him to speak here. In Philosophical Theology, Professor Paul has published on Transubstantiation, Christology and Divine Immutability. His books include a monograph entitled In Defense of Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay. And he has another book coming out around now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just in January. In January. In Defense of Extended Conciliar Christology, a Philosophical Essay in which he argues for the failure of the philosophical objections against the conjunction of conciliar Christology and five common theses in traditional Christology. So he's very well placed to give us a lecture today addressing the question, is the incarnation of God impossible? Professor Paul. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's a it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks especially to Father Richard and, and Kinga who, who supported me and helped me figure out how to get here and got me here in one piece. So happy to be here to speak with you guys tonight about the Incarnation. The, um, the topic of the Incarnation is, uh, well, a wonderful theological topic, but also really rich for philosophical inquiry. And I myself am trained as a philosopher, first and foremost. I worked at St. Louis University uh, with Eleanor Stump there was my, uh, my dissertation director, now getting on, well, many years ago this, this happened. Um, but, uh, so I'm a philosopher by training, but coming at these questions uh, in part as a person of faith, I want to see whether the things I believe, in fact, stand up to philosophical scrutiny. And in part because, as I said earlier, there's lots of really interesting philosophical questions that arise from discussing things like how one person can have two natures, or how you can have the Father be God and the Son be God, and the Father not be the Son, as Christians claim. Lots of room here for philosophical dialogue. So today we're not going to talk about the Trinity, the the Father is God, the Son is God. We're not going to talk about those sorts of claims. We'll talk instead about the Incarnation. And the question I want to ask is, is the Incarnation of God impossible? And my friends have encouraged me that if I was going to say, yes, it is, that I, that I hit the wine reception before the talk to make it easier to tell a room full of people who probably disagree. But instead, I'm going to argue the other way. I'm going to say, here is the, uh, the most forceful argument I found for the claim that the incarnation is impossible. And then I'm going to give an argument against that argument. It's a defensive project. Here's what the objector says. Here's a response to the objector. That's the idea. And so at the end, we won't be able to show a argument that concludes, therefore, God became incarnate, therefore, God possibly became incarnate. Instead, we're going to go the other way and say the very best argument on offer that shows he couldn't have is a faulty, unsound argument. So, okay, off we go. I think the big problem for the incarnation, the big philosophical problem for the incarnation, is there on your handout. And you can find very many folks who make this sort of argument 
I think it's put quite clearly by Richard Cross here in a piece from 2011. I hope you all do have a copy of the handout. I will, I'll read aloud the, the aspects or parts of it that I want to discuss so that if you don't, you hear it, and also so that uh, the recording will include the content of the handout. So here's the, the fundamental philosophical problem of the Incarnation. It goes like this. The fundamental philosophical problem specific to the doctrine is this. How is it that one and the same thing could be both divine and thus on the face of it necessary and necessarily omniscient, omnipotent, eternal, immutable, impassable, and impeccable, and human, and thus on the face of it have the complements of all of these properties? Well, there you have a question. You don't have an argument, but it's very easy to see what the argument is behind the question. How could you have something that's God and so has all the magnificent perfections that a God should have? And is also a man and so has all the necessary limitations that every single man and woman has. How could one thing be both? It seems if you're really omnipotent, you're not also limited in power. It seems if you're necessary, you're not also contingent. If you're uh, impeccable, can't sin, you're not also, say, maybe tempted or able to sin. How do you get both those things in one person is the, is the question. And as a, um, as a boundary condition, as an assumption for the talk, I'm going to assume, for argument's sake, what I might call orthodox Christology. This is on your handout here. The Christological teachings of Christendom from the earliest times in its creeds and statements of faith. And sometimes I'll probably call that conciliar Christology as well. The Christology of the councils of the church, at least the first seven councils from Nicaea all the way to Second Nicaea, the ones agreed upon by the Orthodox and the Catholics. And I, I assume that at the outset for a couple reasons. One reason is I want the Christology that I'm defending from this objection to be a Christology that at least looks like the Christology of the church throughout the centuries. It might be very easy to defend a Christology that doesn't hold up any of the important and crucial bits of the church. And if you do that, you're not really defending a thing anybody cares about. So I want to defend a thing that people have cared about through the ages. And also, having this assumption is going to bar or preclude certain ways you might try to solve the problem. So one way you might say is just to say, oh, well, Jesus wasn't really God, or wasn't really God in the right sort of sense to be omnipotent and eternal. And so it's not the case that Jesus had to be those ways just in virtue of being God because he wasn't God. That's a view sometimes called Arianism from the history of the church. And if you were to assume it, it'd be very, very easy to solve this problem. Or you might go the other way and assume what's often called docetism. It comes from the Greek word for appearance, that Christ only appeared to be a human. He wasn't, in fact, a human. It was like a hologram or like a and Star Trek on the holodeck. It was like that sort of thing. It wasn't really a physical, fleshy thing. And if you said that, you wouldn't have to think that Christ is uh, limited in the ways he seemed to be on Earth, because those are just seemings, appearances. <clears throat> I want to preclude all such purported answers to this question, because, as I said earlier, they're contrary to the received Orthodox Christology of the Church. And that's the thing I'm trying to check whether it's coherent by checking this argument against it. 
So consider then what I have here on your sheet. I call it the, the argument schema. It's numbers one through six there on your sheet. <clears throat> there, I'm gonna use the examples of impassibility and passability as a, as a key set, of, a, a key pair of predicates that you might think Christ has that leads to this problem. But it's just an example. You could use different ones like omniscient and uh, ignorant of some things or omnipotent and limited in power. Well, all I need is just a pair of predicates that it looks like he's one because he's God and it looks like he's the other because he's human. So given this pair that I'm using, the test case here, you can reason like this. Premise one, anything divine is impassable. And again, if you don't prefer impassibility in the Godhead, pick some feature that it, you do think something divine has to have and that a human doesn't have. So anything divine is impassable. But furthermore, anything human is passable. And as premise three states, nothing can be both passable and impassable. But now look at four. Four says Christ is divine and human. And that I think is true from Orthodox Christology. I'll give some reasoning for it later, but I think you can't have Orthodox Christology if you don't think that, that Christ is both divine and human. But it follows from 1, 2, and 4, from the claim that Christ is divine and human, and the claim that anything divine is impassable, and the claim that anything human is passable. From those three claims, you get 5 here. Christ is both passable and impassable. And now we're in a pickle, because... Three and five together are a contradiction. Three says nothing can be both passable and impassable. And five says Christ is both passable and impassable. And it can't be true that nothing is and also this one thing is both passable and impassable. And so, as six states, we've got a contradiction here. Something has gone wrong in the reasoning. I'm going to assume, for argument's sake, I'm going to assume classical logic in this talk. So I'm going to assume that a contradiction spreads or explodes. If you have one contradiction, anything else follows from that contradiction. And so contradictions are very bad things. Some folks deny that contradictions are very bad things. They think you can insulate contradictions so that you have a true contradiction, but it doesn't spread to other things. It doesn't poison the whole darn well. And there are very smart people who've worked that sort of thing out. Uh, but tonight, for this talk, I'm going to not get into any of that, unless you ask me about it, and then I'll have to during the Q&A. But if you don't ask me, I'm not going to tell you. I'll just presume that classical logic is true. Okay, so premises one through four, as you see, entail a contradiction. Five and six are just derivations from those four premises. So at least one of those premises has to be false. And the question is, which is false, and why think that one is false? All right, what should a defender of Orthodox Christology say here? Well, start with premise four. <clears throat> I think that's the easiest to show for the defender of Orthodox Christology. You find the Nicene Creed stating that Christ is both God and man, that he's true God, and he became man. Uh, all these quotations that say Tanner, those are to the, uh, the two-volume series of uh, ecumenical decrees from uh, Norman Tanner translated them a Jesuit. Uh, and it's published by Georgetown Press in the 90s. It's a very great uh, 
collection. Anyway, there you have it. Defensive premise for Christ is both divine and human. Well, how about the other premises? Why might a defender of orthodox or conciliary Christology accept the first premise? Well, here are some reasons. First reason from your handout. The collected conciliar fathers at the Council of Ephesus believed, <coughs> pardon me, so firmly in the immutability and impassibility of the divine nature of Christ that Cyril, Cyril here, the, um, the patriarch of Alexandria, that Cyril could say, quote, I think that those are quite mad who suppose that a shadow of change is conceivable in connection with the divine nature of the word. For he remains what he is always and never changes, nor could he ever change or be susceptible to it. Furthermore, we all confess that the word of God is impassable, though in his all-wise economy of the mystery, he is seen to attribute to himself the sufferings undergone by his own flesh. Now I've italicized the relevant bit there for you. The relevant bit here is we all confess that the word of God is impassable. So there's some reason from the, the Third Ecumenical Council, the Council of Ephesus in 431, some reason to believe uh, that Orthodox Christology requires the belief that Christ is impassable. A second reason, be here under your handout on page one. In the definition of faith from Chalcedon, this is the Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451, the fathers are emphatic about the impassibility of divine nature. They write, quote, But there are those who are trying to ruin the proclamation of the truth, and through their private heresies they have spawned novel formulas, some of which do so by fantastically supposing that in the confusion of the natures of Christ, the divine nature of the only begotten is passable. So what's the fantastical supposition here? The fantastical supposition is that the divine nature of the only begotten, that is, of Christ, is passable. And finally, again at Chalcedon, you see what I think of as the rubber hitting the road. You see them, quote, expelling from the assembly of the priests those who dare to say that the divinity of the only begotten is passable, end quote. So that's fairly serious. They're expelling from the priesthood those who deny impassibility, at least impassibility of the divinity. So there's some reason, three reasons, to think that the early councils require an acceptance of impassibility. Now, I haven't spelt out what impassibility means just yet, right? So there's, there's room to debate about what they meant by impassibility here. But I think it's fairly clear they do affirm impassibility. And finally, on the back, D, here on page two of the handout, one finds similar affirmations of impassibility in later Christian doctrinal statements, including the Lutheran Solid Declaration and the Reformed Second Helvetic Confession. So it's not just antiquated relics of bygone eras where you find impassibility asserted. You also find it asserted in the Reformation debates. You find it in lots of places in the Catholic later statements, the Catholic Ecumenical Councils after the Great Schism. <clears throat> so for those reasons, I think you're on fairly safe ground if you affirm that Christ is impassable. And even more so, for those reasons, I take it that uh, it's conciliarly required 
required by the councils to say that Christ is impassable. All right, how about the second premise? Recall, the second premise states that anything human is passable. Why think that's true? Well, here's some reasoning, uh, again, on the second page of your handout, premise two. A, under premise two, says the following. The Creed of Nicaea says, quote, for us humans and for our salvation, he came down and became incarnate, became human, suffered, that's passus est in the Latin translation anyway, and rose up on the third day. So that's some reason to think he was passable. Right here you have um, he suffered in the Nicene Creed. Secondly, Leo says in his tome, the tome was a, a document he wrote to Flavius, the patriarch of Constantinople, uh, spelling out the Western view of Christ. It was accepted at the Fourth Ecumenical Council, and so it's part of the conciliar documents. Leo writes there, quote, to pay off the debt of our state, invulnerable nature was united to a nature that could suffer, so that in a way that corresponded to the remedies we needed, one and the same mediator between God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ, could both on the one hand die and on the other be incapable of death. So here we have justification for thinking that he suffered, that Christ suffered. And of course, no Christian, I mean, okay, you can never say no Christian because there's always somebody who comes out of the woodwork and says, actually, but very rarely does one find any Christian who wants to say Christ didn't really, in fact, suffer. That's a, that's a minority report of minority reports among Christians. So in my estimation, in my view, the claim that Christ suffered is on extremely solid footing and is vindicated or supported by the ecumenical councils. Now, note something a little bit tricky. The tricky thing is this. The second premise says that anything that's human is passable. And my justification here for premise two doesn't really focus on any human. It just focuses on one human, Christ. It's reasons for thinking Christ is passable. And you might think, well, just showing Christ is passable doesn't really show that any human is passable, like the second premise says. And in response to that, I think Christ is the only case where we'd even be tempted to think that a human isn't passable. We can consider all of us. We've all been causally affected by somebody else. Y'all had a mother. That mother causally affected you. And so it's pretty clear that every other case of a human is a case where the human is causally affectable, is passable. And so likewise, um, the only tricky case might be the Christ case, and I think this justification gives good reasons for thinking in the Christ case, too, we have something passable there that's human. So that's what I take as evidence for one, sorry, for premise four, for premise one, and for premise two. <clears throat> now, even if those are bad bits of evidence, even if you thought, well, those don't really show that Christ is passable and that he's impassable, there's additional independent support for premise five. Remember, five is supposed to follow from one, two, and four. But even if you thought those weren't good enough reasons I gave for one, two, and four, there's separate reason to give just for five all by itself. And so here it is on your handout. Even if one, two, or four were false, there would still be some independent reason why the defender of Orthodox Christology, or 
for the defender of Orthodox Christology to accept five, or at least be reticent to deny premise five. Well, here's two bits of reasoning for that. The first is from Athanasius. Athanasius was a, um, a magnificent father of the church. He was there at the first council of Nicaea. And he says that Christ, quote, suffered and did not suffer. And it's not just Athanasius you find saying this sort of thing. You find it in St. John of Damascus as well. You find it in Aquinas, who's following St. John of Damascus. So these sort of claims where the great church fathers will say that Christ both suffered and didn't suffer in the same breath are fairly ubiquitous. But secondly, and more importantly, look at B there. The Fourth Council of Constantinople says the following. They say there, quote, We also know that the Seventh Holy and Universal Synod, held for the second time at Nicaea, so now they're talking about Second Nicaea, which is the council in 787, the last council accepted by both the Orthodox and the Catholics. So they say that second time in Nicaea, that council, quote, taught correctly when it professed the one and same Christ as both invisible and visible Lord, incomprehensible and comprehensible, unlimited and limited, incapable and capable of suffering, inexpressible and expressible in writing, end quote. And if you want to see a logician have a heart attack, Give him this sentence here, where you have five seeming contradictions right in a row and ask him to make sense of what's going on in it. It's tricky business. And if you're somebody who's committed to the ecumenical councils of the Catholic Church and you read this, you might just want to go crawl under your bed for a little bit and think about what you've done with your life. Because it looks like a lot of contradiction all mashed together and tied in a neat little bow. And it's not a hidden minority report view this is from an ecumenical council. And it wasn't just any ecumenical council. It was the seventh ecumenical council, which had hundreds of bishops present who produced this. And then uh, just under 100 years later, maybe 80 years later, a, another council came along and said, oh, that very thing they said, one person is both this and not it, and that and not that, and this other thing and not that thing. That was true and good, says the next ecumenical council. So it's not just a one-off. It was asserted by a group of hundreds, let rest for 60 or 80 years, and then asserted again by another group of hundreds. So what do you do when you see this sort of thing, is the question of the talk. Even if the arguments for premises 1 and 2 and 4 weren't good for some reason or other, <coughs> we still get fairly clear statement of 5 in the church councils. So 5 tells us that Christ is both passable and impassable. 3 tells us nothing can be both passable and impassable. And we've got a contradiction. By my lights, there's really good reason to accept 1, 2, 4, and 5. But if you're accepting 1, 2, 4, and 5, you shouldn't accept 3. And so there's got to be some reason to think, well, actually, something could be both passable and impassable. You might not have thought it before, but well, there's some good reason to think it now, at least if you're accepting along with me the orthodox teachings on Christ, what I called orthodox Christology. So that's where we're at. We've presented a formally valid argument. We've given a defense of the premises of the argument. We've seen that it leads to a contradiction, so something has to be wrong with it. I've given what I take as good reason from the conciliar texts 
for accepting all the theological claims in the argument. And so the only thing left to go is that third claim, what you might think of as a more philosophical claim. It's not about God or Christ or anything like that. It's just saying nothing can be both these ways. Well, how might we deny that? How might we say, well, I mean, something could be both passable and impassable. There are a couple different ways people do this. So one way to do this is to spell out three a bit more. Nothing can be both passable and impassable at the same time in the same respect. You know, you might be sitting and standing, but you're not sitting and standing at the same time. You were standing when you walked in and you're sitting now. And no contradiction if I say you're sitting at that other time and standing at this other time. So maybe one response here is maybe Christ was omniscient and omnipotent and necessary and impassable and immutable before incarnation. And then when he became incarnate, he suddenly stopped being all those ways. You see, this is like saying you're sitting at one time and standing at another. Christ was all-powerful and necessary and immutable for a long, for, for I don't know how long, but he was that way, and then he became incarnate, and then he stopped being omnipotent, and he stopped being omniscient, and he stopped being necessary. How that could work? I don't know. He stopped being immutable and impassable and all the rest. If you say that, then what, you, what you'd be able to say here is the following. True, nothing can be both passable and impassable at the same time in the same respect. But 5 doesn't show us that. Premise 5 just tells us he was both. doesn't say he was both at the same time. So as long as he was immutable at one time and mutable at a different time, well, then maybe we can save ourselves from this contradiction. That's one purported response here. And you'll see, uh, it doesn't appear on your handout, I, this is not a response I prefer. And this for a couple reasons. One reason I don't prefer it is because there's good reason from the councils to think that Christ is immutable. And if he's really immutable in his divine nature, if he's immutable because he's divine, then he's not going to be able to change the divinity of him. The divine nature isn't going to start being a different way. He's not going to be related to it differently after the incarnation. But secondly, the councils will say things like this. While remaining pre-existent, he began to exist in time. Or they'll say, even as an infant in the swaddling cloths at the bosom of the virgin, so even when he's a little baby, he was still co-ruler of all of, all of reality. And so there they're saying, even when a teeny tiny baby, he was still a co-ruler of all creation. And so the councils give us good reasons to think that he didn't just get rid of all of his divine prerogatives when he became a man. And since the councils give us good reasons to think he didn't shed off all of his divine prerogatives when he became a man, I think the person who's assuming with me orthodox Christology shouldn't accept this way of getting out of the problem. So that's one way people might respond. It's often called canonic Christology. Canonic from the word kenosis. That's in, oh, someone help me out here. Philippians 2. Yeah, Philippians 2. Say the rest of it. Yes. You passed. <laughs> yes, there you go. So there it says, uh, what? Uh, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant or a slave. 
And the word for emptying there is kenosis. So the idea is he emptied himself when he became man. And people take that passage and they say, ah, there you have it. He had divine prerogatives and then he emptied himself of all of them when he became a man. But as I've given reason for, I think the councils don't bear out that interpretation of that passage. I think the councils require him to keep his divine prerogatives even when he's in the flesh, like he's still a co-ruler even in the flesh. But one more problem with that sort of view is the following. With that sort of view, with the canonic view of Christ, you have a trick when it comes to what's called the exaltation. So at the end of the incarnate life, Christ dies, then he, then he is resurrected, then he ascends to heaven, never to get rid of his heaven, never to get rid of his human body again, never to be separated from his human body. He's always human, henceforth, is the traditional Christian doctrine. But he's supposed to also be exalted. He has all of his divine prerogatives, and he's still a human. And so the problem of how do you make sense of an impassable, passable person doesn't go away. It just gets focused on a different segment of his divine and human life, the segment after the exaltation. So I think that canonic view isn't going to work well. A second view that I'm not particularly fond of, but you find some good reason for it in the tradition, is this. Remember I said premise three should be nothing to be both passable and impassable at the same time in the same respect. Now, I've told you why I don't like the at-the-same-time maneuvers to get around the problem. Leave that to the side. Assume we're talking about the same time from now on. But maybe different respects. You find that. You find the council saying things like, as a man, he was whipped for our sins. But as God, he did this. Or, as a man, he did that. But as God, he did this. And it was the same one who did both. The same one who made the spittle that cured the blindness, the very same person. But he did it through or by means of his different natures, his divine nature and his human nature. So you find this sort of claim in virtue of claim. Sometimes it's called qua, because that's the word we use for it. Qua human, as a human, he died. Qua God, as God, he lived. So some people say here what we should do is this. When we see that Christ is passable and impassable, what we should really say is he's passable as a human, and he's impassable as God, and so he's not passable and impassable in the same sense, different senses of the word here, and so no contradiction. You only get a contradiction if it's at the same time in the same sense, and you don't have in the same sense, so no contradiction between three and five when you revise them properly. Now, I like that sort of move, and I think it's a good opening move in the discussion. <clears throat> but it's tricky, and here's why. Suppose I said to you, I've done something new, and you'll never believe it. I've drawn a square circle. And you'd say, ah, that sounds contradictory. You can't have a square circle. Anything circular has no right angles. Anything square has at least four, at most four, has exactly four right angles. And so you can't draw something that has no right angles and four right angles, so you can't have drawn a square circle. See, that's, that's just like the problem in this paper, right? Anything divine has to be this way. Anything human is that way. Can't have both. Anything square has to have four right angles. Anything circular has to have zero right angles. Can't have both. Now, what if I responded to you and said, well, actually, 
I have drawn a square circle, and here's how I did it. It's got four right angles qua square, and it's got zero right angles qua circle. And then I stopped talking. You might think you haven't really solved anything, Tim. You've just said a form of words, but you haven't helped me see how one and the same thing could have four right angles and zero right angles. Adding these qua locutions is insofar as it's a square, it's got four right angles. Insofar as it's a circle, it's got zero right angles. That doesn't help you at all. You can't visualize it. It doesn't help you think of what it is I'm talking about. Well, I think these qua moves do something similar. If I say to you, ah, it's qua human that he's passable, and it's qua divine that he's impassable, and so I've solved the contradiction, you would be well within your rights to say, well, how, wait, how does that even work? How is it that because he's human, he can be one way, and because he's divine, he can be the opposite of that way? You have to flesh it out more. We're not happy at this point yet. And so I think this sort of qua claim is useful as an initial step, but only as an initial step. And you have to give a lot more, uh, you might think of it as philosophical machinery to understand how it is that one thing can be both passable and impassable. And so if you look at the back of your handout, the bottom half, I'm going to try to give you some more machinery. So I'm going to separate what you might call initial truth conditions from revised truth conditions. And by initial, I just mean what you might have thought before really reflecting on these things. So what might you have thought the truth conditions are for being passable? Under what conditions is something rightly called passable? And I think these are pretty typical conditions that I have here on your page. S, that just means a subject. So something, S, is passable just in case or if and only if it's possible that at least one other thing causally affect it. So in what conditions are you passable? You're passable when at least one other thing could causally affect you. You know, push you, make you sad. That's being passable. And what is it to be impassable? Well, you might have thought it's impassable just in case it's not the case that it's possible for something else to causally affect it. You're passable when you can be causally affected. You're impassable when you can't be causally affected. If you look at those claims, you'll notice, well, you'll notice first parentheticals there. It says P and then an arrow going two directions in C. That just means P is true if and only if C is true. That's just telling you the logical form of the sentence it's attached to. If you look at those claims, you'll see that the right side of that double arrow is C in the top case, the passable case, and it's tilde C, which means not C in the next case. It's a claim and it's negation. So the first one is C, the next one is the opposite of C. And if that's what passable and impassable mean, if it means can be affected, can't be affected, then I see no way of making sense of the claim that one thing was both passable and impassable. Because nothing can be both possibly causally affectable and also not possibly causally affectable. Nothing can be both one way and the opposite of that very same way. And so I think if these initial truth conditions are the right ones, it's going it's to be super hard to make sense of what is meant when the church says one and the same Christ is both passable and impassable. 
So I think instead what we should do is we should try to think of other ways we can understand these terms, ways that the fathers might well have had in mind, such that if you understand these terms in those ways, you don't have a contradiction anymore. So look at what I've called there the revised truth conditions. <clears throat> to give these, I'll need a new concept, one I haven't defined yet. So I'll tell you, it's called a concrete nature. And I'll briefly, briefly describe what it is. So we know that traditional Christology says that Christ is one person and he has two natures. A divine nature that he shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And a human nature. And the question has been, at least in the contemporary debates, when we say Christ has a human nature, do we mean something universal and shareable? Like you might think of humanity. Does, do we mean that Christ assumed humanity? The abstract thing? Or do we, do we mean that he assumed a concrete flesh and blood just like this sort of thing? A thing that's a composite of body and soul. And for this talk... I'll be using the word nature in that second sense, a concrete sense. So when I think of Christ assuming a human nature, I mean Christ gained something in lots and lots of ways just like this. It had flesh, it had a heart, it had blood in its veins, it had hair. When I say concrete nature, I mean something just like that. So using that term, we can understand passability in the following way or something, some subject is passable, just in case, or if and only if, S has a concrete nature that it is possible for some other thing to causally affect. And when is something impassable? It's impassable when it has a concrete nature that something can't affect. Uh, just a quick note on the logic. If you look, if you know a bit about logic, you'll see what I've done is I've taken the negation, the not, and given it what's called narrow scope. I've moved it in. So uh, before I had defined impassable as it's not the case that you can causally affect it. Now I'm saying it has a nature that can't, there's a negation, can't be causally affected. And I think that change of where the negation goes makes all the difference in the world. Here's an analogy. I'm a person who has two arms. And you might think of a term being arm-bent. And you might say something is arm-bent when it has an arm that's bent at, say, more than 90 degrees. I'm just making up this term so I can stipulate the conditions under which it's true. And I'll just tell you, if your arm is bent more than 90 degrees, then you, the person, you count as arm-bent. Now, you can also form a different term, arm-unbent. And your arm, they're ugly terms, I know. But they're my terms, darn it. So, and I'm going to stipulate their meanings. So you can be arm unbent. Something is arm unbent when it has an arm that's not bent at over 90 degrees. So here I am being arm bent with my arm bent more than 90 degrees. And here I am being arm unbent with my arm straight and so not bent over 90 degrees. And as long as a thing has two arms, it can fulfill the conditions for being both arm bent and arm unbent at the same time, in the same way. The very same definition is true of me. I'm arm bent and I'm arm unbent right now. All I need is those two arms in virtue of which having a bent one and having a straight one are true of me. So likewise for Christ. What Christ needs is two different natures, one of which the flesh and blood one, 
could be hung on a cross, could be pierced with nails. And because of that, we can say of Christ that he's passable because he has a nature that can be causally affected. But the very same Christ can also count as impassable because he has a nature that can't be causally affected. That is, his divine nature isn't something you can kick or push or shove or change or causally affect. Now, as far as we know, there's only ever been one case of something with two natures. I mean, Orthodox Christianity doesn't tell us of any other case of one person having two distinct natures like this. It's only the Christ case. And so in every other case, in every case where a thing has only one nature, it's not going to be possibly, it can't be both passable and impassable because it can't have a single nature that's both causally affectable and not. But once you have one thing with two different natures, one nature can do the work of making true, one nature can do the work of being causally affectable, and so the man is passable. The other nature can do the work of being causally not affectable, and so the man is impassable. And if he has them both, he can count as both passable and impassable. Now, no shame on us for not having this sort of situation in mind when we think of what it takes to be passable, because there's only one such situation, and we very rarely think of the truth conditions for being passable and impassable in light of that one unique situation of the Incarnation. So I think these two ways of understanding these revised truth conditions, passable and impassable, I think that they have lots of virtues going for them. One virtue is they make sense of these claims by the Church where it says that Christ is both passable and impassable, uh, unlimited and limited, and all the rest. Well, we can see how that would work. He's unlimited because he's got one nature without limit, the divine nature. He's limited because he has a different nature with limits, the human nature. And so I think these truth conditions that I've given here are beneficial. They can help us see our way around this fundamental problem as long as we understand the concepts in this sort of way I've given here. <clears throat> so that's one benefit of it. We might wonder, is this really what they had in mind when they thought about impassibility? Were they really thinking, has a nature such that it can be causally affected? Well, I can't tell you for sure, yes, this is what they thought. But it seems to me to be a decent view to have on it for the following reasons. We know that they chastise their interlocutors for contradictions. I mean, if you go and read Athanasius writing against Arius, most of it reads like an extended modus tollens. By which I mean, hey, Arius, if you're right, then this passage means thus and such. But it can't mean that, so you're wrong. And hey, Arius, if you're right about Christ, this passage means this other thing. But it can't mean that, so you're wrong. What we find the fathers doing is always arguing, their, or maybe not always, but very often arguing their opponents to a contradiction and then claiming because you have a contradiction, you're wrong. So we know that the fathers weren't willing to let contradictions stand. And we also know that very many of them were very philosophically sharp. <clears throat> and so it's just, it's unfathomable to me to think that they would say these explicitly contradictory things and just not even notice that they were contradicting themselves. That they could say, as it says on page two of your handout, 
that one and the same Christ is both invisible and visible, incomprehensible and comprehensible, unlimited and limited, incapable and capable of suffering, inexpressible and expressible in writing. That they could say such a thing and not even realize they're saying things that are apparently contradictory. I think that's a very uncharitable read of them. So I think they just had to have had something in mind that allows for a non-contradictory reading of the terms. And as best as I can tell, the sort of reading I've given here uh, will give us a non-contradictory reading of their, ter- of their statements and also not require us to have a, a massive revision of what we mean by these terms, passable and impassable. Everything you thought was passable before my talk started still counts as passable on these revised truth conditions. Because for things with one nature, nothing changes. It's only with things with two natures that things get tricky and they can fulfill both conditions. Everything else in existence having only one nature can fulfill only one of these two. So then just to conclude, what I've done here is, pardon me, I've given what I take to be the strongest philosophical objection to the Incarnation. I then, after giving a quotation from Richard Cross for it, given some evidence for the premises of that argument drawn from the conciliar texts of the Orthodox and Catholic churches, the shared conciliar texts. After that, I've said the culprit in this argument appears to me to be the philosophical thesis that nothing can be both passable and impassable. And to that, I've given a couple different ways you might understand and revise to try to get out of the contradiction. You might go with canonic Christology, which recall they say that, ah, he's not passable and impassable at the same time, and so no contradiction. I don't like that one. I said you might say, uh, you might go with the in the same sense sort of solutions, using the qua or insofar as claims. And I said there that's a good start, but you have to really spell out what's going on philosophically to get something satisfactory out of a qua solution. And then, though I don't think of it as a qua-solution, I've given a way of spelling out what the terms mean here so that you can understand uh, how something can be both passable and impassable without implying a contradiction. Thank you.